All right, if you've got your Bibles with you, <clears throat> would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6? You'll remember um, about two weeks ago and the week before that, we had started a series called Waiting Patiently. Um, this will be part three of that. And so we're talking about Abraham. And so if you're not familiar with Abraham, and I'm sure you all are by now, is that Abraham was given a promise that he would have a son, uh, called the promised son, the son of promise, and that he had to wait 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. And so what we see in Hebrews chapter six is that the writer is referencing this very promise that God gave to Abraham. And so these are our foundation scriptures. It's Hebrews chapter six and then Romans chapter four. But let's read Hebrews chapter six first. So it says this, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Let's go to Romans chapter four, and we're gonna read from verse 18 to 21. So you remember Romans chapter four, verse 18 to 21 gives us a breakdown on how Abraham waited patiently. Hebrews six tells us, Abraham waited patiently, and Romans chapter four tells us how he did it. And so there's these points that we can call out from verse 18 to 21. We've already covered two of them. You remember first we spoke about hope, which was in verse 19. It says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many, the many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. The next week we spoke about verse 19. It says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And today we're gonna to look at the third one, which is this in verse 20, it says this, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. I'll read again, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. One more time, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. So very two important words in the sentence. The first one is unbelief and the second one is waver. And so what does that actually mean? Very interesting, the word unbelief is actually the direct opposite word of faith. Um, if you like big language words, I like this one, it's called the antithesis of faith. It's like the direct opposition. You kind of think like those superhero movies, right? Whenever there's a superhero movie, there's always a villain in that movie who's fighting against that superhero. Like Superman, I don't know about, I haven't seen the new Supermans, but the old Superman would be like the guy, Lex Luthor, right? Spider-Man, you got Dr. Octopus, or the Green Goblin, you got Batman, you got the Joker. And so whenever there's a superpower, there's always a supervillain at work against the superpower. And so this is what we see even in the Bible that we have we spoke about last time, we have this supernatural ability endowed upon us as Christians, which really separates us from the world. And it's the super ability of faith. That remember we spoke about how Jesus said, with faith, we can do anything. By faith, we can speak to an olive tree and it will dry up. By faith, we can speak to a mountain, it will move. By faith, we can speak to a limb and it will grow. And so by faith, we have this supernatural ability, but there's a villain at work in this earth and it's called unbelief. And unbelief is in opposition to the faith that God inbirths in our heart. 
And so when we look at the two Greek words of faith and unbelief, you remember faith is this, it's pistis, and it means there's this divine persuasion. Another way of saying it is it's a supernatural guarantee in the heart of the believer that what was promised will come to pass. Again, this is the definition of faith, a supernatural guarantee in the heart of the believer that what was promised will come to, to pass. Now, this is what unbelief means. Remember, we're talking about the antithesis, the op- opposing force of faith. This is what unbelief means. In Greek, it's the word apistos. And it says, without divine persuasion. So faith means with divine persuasion. Unbelief means without divine persuasion. And it actually says, withholding belief in the divine power and promises of God. Faith makes me fully convinced that God is able to do that which He said He will do and to to be that who He said He will be. Whereas unbelief, on the other hand, works against that and creates in me this thought and this concept that even when God speaks, He is not able to do what He has spoken. This is what unbelief does. And so again, you see these two opposing forces at work against one another. If we go with me to the Gospels, we see even Jesus experiences. So we're gonna look at two very different encounters in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew in particular. So if you go to Matthew chapter eight, first of all, we will see the first one. Matthew chapter eight, verse five to 13. And it says this, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he says this, and and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Right, let's read the next one. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 to 39, 59, sorry. And when Jesus had finished his parables, he went away from them. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And verse 57 says, and they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. Listen to verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so here we see this Roman centurion comes to Jesus. Luke chapter seven references this even more. So we see in in Matthew, it says that the man is paralyzed. Luke chapter seven says he's at the point of death. This man comes to Jesus. Jesus recognizes the force of faith 
inside the centurion. He says, because of your faith, I don't even have to go to your house. I can merely just tell you that he will be healed. And what does it say? In that moment, in that instant that Jesus said, your servant will be well, he was made well. In Matthew, Luke chapter seven, it talks about how the servants come running out of the house to the master and they say, master, you're, he's better, he's much better now. And they said that the centurion recognised it, that the moment Jesus spoke it was when his servant was made whole. And so we see the power of faith at work. And it's often through the gospels, the woman reaching out to touch the robe of his garment. Remember, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And so Jesus is able to partner with faith and to see His miraculous ability go forth and do mighty miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. But what we see in Matthew chapter 13 is we see this antithesis, right? This opposition of faith called unbelief, even at work against the person of Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew chapter eight, it says, He just says the word, and the guy, the lame man who's at the point of death gets healed. Here, it says he could do no mighty work except lay his hands on a few, I like that's what Mark chapter six says, lay his hands on a few sick people and they were healed. But they didn't even consider that as mighty. And so Jesus could do mighty works where faith was present, but where faith was not, where unbelief was present, he could do no mighty works. And so, Unbelief was a force that Jesus had to come up against, whereas faith was a force that empowered His miraculous ability to work more effectively. I'll say it again. Unbelief was a force that Jesus had to come up against, whereas faith was a force that empowered His miraculous ability to work more effectively. So we're talking about unbelief. We're unpacking this word unbelief. And so we see it's a, it's a force work against the force of faith, not only for Jesus, but for you and I too. That there is unbelief in this world, there's unbelief in the spirit realm that seeks to work in opposition to us, having faith to receive the promises of God over our life. And so it's something that we have to be aware of. And so unbelief is not to be taken lightly, Unbelief is not something that we should entertain for a second even. Unbelief, what we're gonna see is demonic in its nature. At the very root of it is actually demonic. And so we'll see that here. And so a good question to ask ourselves is where does unbelief come from? Well, we know in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, that word, when it talks about the Word of God, it talks about the, the living Word, the rhema, the voice of the Father. And so we know that faith comes from the voice of the Father. When the Father speaks truth, faith follows, always. Whenever the Father speaks truth into our heart, what is He doing in that moment? He's inbirthing faith in me to believe Him for the truth that He has just revealed to me. So let's say I have sickness in my body, I'm spending time with Him and the Scripture, what we call bubbles up in my heart, I the Lord am your healer. What's He doing? He's speaking truth and faith is coming with that truth to inbirth me, giving me the ability to believe Him, to be my healer and therefore step into healing. So faith comes through the voice of the Father, but unbelief comes through the voice of Satan. That word Satan, it actually means this adversary. And so everything Satan is, 
is in opposition to the Father. If the Father brings faith, Satan brings unbelief. If the Father brings peace, Satan brings fear. If the Father brings joy, Satan brings depression. If the Father brings love, Satan brings hate. If the Father brings life, Satan brings destruction. That's who He is. He's in opposition in His nature. You remember from the first part, we looked at these qualities of God. I don't know if you remember this in Hebrews chapter six, that it's impossible for God to lie. The second quality of God we looked at was that in in Isaiah 55, it's God's earnest intention when speaking a promise is to bring it to fulfillment. And the third one was in Jeremiah chapter one, when God speaks, He watches over His word to perform it. And I can tell you without a doubt in my mind that none of these qualities exist in the person of Satan. You could say like as in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, another scripture we looked at where it says, talking about God, it says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. It could be said of Satan, Satan is darkness and in Him there is no light at all. He is the complete opposite. He is the adversary, the opposing force to the Father. And not only that, He is the opposing force to the work of the Father in the unbeliever. And so He comes to oppose what God is doing in my life. And so God is bringing faith in me to receive the promise. Satan comes and he speaks unbelief into me to oppose me from receiving the promise that God has spoken into my life. Does that make sense to everybody? I want us to go to John chapter eight, verse 44. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement. Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees, gentlemanly discussion. He says this, you are of your father, the devil. Lovely. And your will is to do your father's desires. Then he begins to elaborate on the nature of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Remember I said, he is darkness and in him there is no light. No truth can be found even in like a 0,0,0,0,1% of a cell of his body. It cannot exist in him. And so it says, there is no truth in him. It says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so what we see here is how unbelief comes into our mind and starts to oppose us is when the enemy comes and he speaks a lie. And so there's a saying, if you might not have heard it, is this, is if you believe the lie, you empower the liar. I'll say it again. You believe the lie, you empower the liar. And so when Satan lies, unbelief is birthed within me. And unbelief begins to, if you can think of this way, there's these two trees. God speaks faith and then this tree of faith begins to grow up inside of me and begins to bear fruit. But then Satan comes and he speaks a lie and this tree of unbelief begins to grow up inside of me and it too begins to bear fruit. And then these two things begin to oppose one another inside the heart of the believer. Why? Because I believed a lie that Satan has spoken over me. 
He lies and unbelief is formed. And so here again, we see why unbelief is so dangerous. Why unbelief should not be entertained. And like I said just now, because at the very core of unbelief is that it's demonic. Unbelief is the birth child of Satan. It comes out of the heart of Satan himself. And it's a force that he uses against the believer to hinder us in our walk with God. If we go to Hebrews chapter three, verse 12, we're gonna elaborate on this a little bit more. So in Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. So the, the, just the, the context of what's going on here is that what the writer is referring to is when the Israelites came out of Egypt with Moses and they wandered around in the desert for 40 years and they didn't enter into the promised land. And so what happened is that generation that actually came out of Egypt, that whole generation, apart from Moses and Joshua, not Moses, Joshua and Caleb, sorry. Apart from Joshua and Caleb, that whole generation died and their children went into the promised land. They were the only ones who inherited the promise. And so this is what the writer of Hebrews in chapter three, this is what he's referencing, that moment of the Israelites in the wilderness. And so he, he draws, a little love about Hebrews, he takes Old Testament examples and he draws warnings from it for, for us. He says, these guys did this. This is the mistake that they made. Now you don't do it yourself. And this is what he's doing here. So it says in verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so how does he describe the heart of unbelief? He describes the heart of unbelief as evil. In the NIV, it actually says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the Lord. And so why is unbelief regarded as sin? Well, first of all, we saw that it's demonic in its nature, that it's birthed out of the heart of Satan. But more than that, we can say it's because of this. Unbelief is accepting something into my life that is contrary to the nature of God as well as contrary to God's will for my life. I'll read that again. Unbelief is accepting something into my life that is contrary to the nature of God as well as contrary to God's will for my life. Second point is this, it, God, unbelief is accepting the voice of Satan over the voice of God, bottom line. And so when I choose, I can, I can be believing God for a promise. I can be standing for a promise. Let's say, I've got this sickness in my body and it's this, like this rare sickness and you know, the doctors don't know what to do and year after year I'm struggling with this thing and so I'm spending time with the Lord and, and, I, and, I, and I, Father, what are you saying? What is the word of the Lord in this situation? And He takes me to Psalm 103, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits who heals all my diseases. In that moment, I get a revelation. Wow, Lord, that means every disease that can exist on this earth, you can heal it. Even this rare genetic disorder disease that I have that the doctors don't even know what to do, that falls under this category. 
And so I begin to work this promise and faith begins to build up inside of me. And so I'm waiting for the promise. I'm waiting for the promise. And, and Lord, I'm trying to, it's kind of turning into like an Abraham thing here. And I'm, I'm waiting 25 years for this promise. And so what happens when the waiting is happening, the enemy comes to deceive. The enemy comes to lie. And he begins to whisper into your ear. He says, yeah, you've been waiting a long time. Are you sure this is like really true? You know, your, your experience doesn't line up with what the Bible is saying. And so in that moment, I have a choice to choose to partner with the lie, to choose to partner with unbelief, or to remain on course with faith and truth that God has spoken. And so when, you know, and this is, this is what we do is, when circumstances are contrary, when, when things are, are hard, when, you know, like I said, you wake up and the pain is still there and you wake up and the pain is still there, you wake up and the pain is still there. What we do is we bring our experience and we bring it down, or rather we take the Word of God and we bring it down to the level of our experience. And we say, yes, Lord, Psalm 103 says, you heal all my diseases except for mine because I am not seeing the evidence of it. That is a lie that I have believed that has now produced a tree of unbelief in my heart. And that unbelief is now at work against the force of faith inside of me. And so if unbelief is a sin, then it is something that needs to be repented of. And so you remember the word repentance simply means it's, it's a change of the way you think. It's a change of your mind resulting in a change of direction. And so I need to identify and, and I pray as I speak that the Holy Spirit highlights things to you this morning. I, I, I recognise unbelief. I recognise lies that the enemy has spoken that are contrary to the promises of God over my life. And so what I do, when, I, when the enemy comes with the lie and, and I recognise that lie, I repent. I say, no, 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 I change the way I think about this situation. Father, your words, I've brought your word down to my experience because I haven't witnessed it. I haven't seen the evidence of it. But you said your word is eternal, Lord. You said you, you exalt your word above your name. Your word does not come void. Oh, your, word that, your word that comes forth from your mouth does not return void. So I renew my mind to the truth of what this lie has come against me. And I say, no, 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 Lord. I exalt your word above my experience. And I, so I go back, repent, go back to the top. I change the way I think again and I put it back where it's supposed to be. And so now I speak by faith that my experience must rise up to match the level of what the Word says, not bringing the Word down to the level of my experience. And so this is, this is what we have to contend for. This is what Abraham had to contend. 25 years, Abraham, you will have a son of promise Sarah's womb, as good as dead, 90 years old, 100 years old, crazy old man believing God for some silly things. But he never, he never brought the word, he never brought the promise down to his experience. He continued to pursue. He continued to wait patiently. He continued to hope in God. He didn't allow his faith to be weakened. He did not, he did not consider his body dead. 
But he brought his experience. Year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty-five. Boom. He waited and he contended. Remember that word wait means to persevere, to stand steadfast. And that's what we see from these characteristics of Abraham. It's an ability to be steadfast in the waiting. The waiting is not a passive thing. Bible says it like this, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violence take it by force. Too often we're so apathetic, you know, just too blasé about the things of God, especially in the Western church, we're the most guilty. We need to pursue, stand up, get up off your chair and start doing something. Start pursuing. You're not a victim to this stupid enemy called the devil and lie him, just slap you around and lie to you your whole life. Some of us, he'd lie to us when we're kids and we still believe it when we're 50 years old. And we've allowed this tree of unbelief to grow in our hearts. This is not God. Stand up. Fight back. The victory's yours, guaranteed. Just one punch. That's all it takes. And so I need to repent. I need to change the way I think. I need to change my belief system, my view on what the enemy has spoken to me, and I need to replace it with truth. I need to renew my mind. I need to go back. Father, what was that promise that you told me three years ago? Psalm 103, He heals all my diseases. This is how we fight. This is how we stand. I go, I meditate on the Word. I keep it before me. I speak the Word. I believe the Word. I get it inside. I allow faith to grow. Unbelief comes. The liar comes. Shut up, go away. And I just, you know, and I speak the Word. I speak the Word. I fight. I fight back. And I know it's hard. And I know some of you, you've been fighting something for years already and you haven't seen the evidence and, and you haven't seen the breakthrough. But keep fighting. Keep fighting. I look at Chris sitting here, he's a boxer. You know, stay on your feet at all costs. If he lands you a blow, stay on your feet. If you feel a bit dizzy, stay on your feet because the dizziness will go and you'll get your opportunity to sucker punch him. <laughs> but you've got to stay on your feet. Worst thing to do is to go down. Keep fighting. And so talking about the renewing of the mind, we're talking about a change of mind. And so I wrote here my notes, if I choose not to repent, if I make that choice to go down, if I make the choice not to repent, not to change my mind, not to fight back concerning unbelief, it can oppose the manifestation of the promise of God that I've been waiting for. I'll read again. If I choose not to repent, not to change my mind concerning unbelief, it can oppose the manifestation of the promise of God that I've been waiting for. Hebrews chapter three, let's read on. Prime example, let's read verse 16 to 19. It says, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? 
And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Their promise was called the promised land. Back Abraham's times, actually, when the nation of Israel wasn't even birthed yet through Jacob, God gave a promise to Israel and He said to Abraham, walk this land, this land I will give to your descendants after you. And so the Israelites, they held on to that promise in their 400 years in slavery, they held on to the promise that God has a promised land for us. He set it up before them. He gave them the word through the prophet. But yet they get to that moment. This is it, the promise that they've been waiting for. It's finally on the doorstep. They leave Egypt. They see God do mighty miracles. The Red Sea opens up before them and swallows Pharaoh and all his chariots. They see the work of the Lord. And in the desert, in the time of trying, in the time of adverse circumstances, Satan came and he spoke a lie. And unbelief was birthed in the heart of Israel. And it says that unbelief stopped them from entering into the promise. So I read it again. If I choose not to repent, not to change my mind concerning unbelief, that's the Lord. It can oppose the manifestation of the promise of God that I've been waiting for. Let's read another Scripture, another example. Let's go to 2 Kings. We're gonna read 2 Kings chapter seven. Kings is after Chronicles. Not before Chronicles, sorry. So we're gonna read verse one to two, first of all. Um, just again, some context of what's happening here. This is Israel in the Old Testament, obviously. And there's these guys called, or a nation called Syria. And there's this king called Ben-Hadad. And what they do, they've come and they've put like a, a siege against the city of Samaria where the Israelites were living. And so nothing could go in and nothing could go out. Like they boarded up the walls, they put stuff against the gates and they put their army around the city so that the people of Israel couldn't go in and out. The, the, the purpose being that they would starve to death. And so if you read the preceding verses, they run out of food and they actually even start eating their own children. There's like the story, if you read it, it's like these two women, they make an agreement and they say, today I'll eat my son and then tomorrow we'll eat your son. And they come to this king with a disagreement because the one day they ate this child's son, but then the other, other lady hid her son so they couldn't eat it. And she never kept her side of the bargain. You know, this is how desperate they were to eat. There was no food. There was a siege around the city. So the king's angry. He hates God. He hates what the prophet at this time is called, Elisha. He comes to Elisha and says, this is your God's fault. Tell us what he says. And so we pick up in chapter seven, verse one, it says, but Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seer of fine flour shall be, shall, shall be it's like a, she sells shells in the seashore. <laughs> so one of those ones. 
a seer of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. <laughs> and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Listen to this verse two, a statement of unbelief. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so what happens the next day is that God causes, what I can't remember, he causes an earthquake or he causes a rumor in this Syrian camp and they all just flee. They run in the middle of the night. And so there's a couple of, these four lepers. You know, the lepers weren't allowed inside the city. They were like sitting in the desert somewhere and they come to this conclusion and says, well, we've got no food and we're gonna die anyway. So let's just go to the Syrian army. Maybe they'll have mercy on us and give us food. If they don't, we're gonna die anyway. So it doesn't matter. So these four lepers go out and when they come to the Syrian base, they just check like all this food on the floor, all the equipment, the Syrian army is like just abandoned everything. So they start chowing, they're eating and they're like, wait, this is actually bad. Let's tell everybody else about this too. You know, so they go back and they tell the king, and this is where we pick up in verse 16. And so it says this, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. So God spoke a promise through the prophet. Remember that in verse one. It says, now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he, so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seers of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seer of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate and he died. This promise of the Lord was for everybody in the city of Samaria. But this man couldn't partake of the promise because of unbelief. And obviously, I'm not saying you're gonna die if you have unbelief. That's just his problem. <laughs> but he couldn't, partake of the promise. Why? Because there was an opposition to the promise of God at work in his life through the force of unbelief. And so unbelief is much more dangerous than we think. We cannot afford it for even a second. Let's go back to Romans 4 verse 20 and we look at our next word, which is waver. So it says, there's no unbelief made him waver, talking of Abraham. So we see the, 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 the pattern or the, the line of the, of the chain of which things happen here is that Satan speaks, unbelief is birthed in my heart. The tree of unbelief comes up. The fruit of unbelief is that I would waver. And so that word waver, it simply means this, is to doubt. God speaks something, but I doubt in my heart that what He says will actually come to pass. But more than just doubting that word, waver means, it means to vacillate. In other words, I'm between two 
different opinions. And so in James chapter one, verse six, he uses the very same word there. And he says this about wavering. He says this about doubting. James one, verse six says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts, that same word there is waver and love this, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And so that's the easy way to remember waver. It's like a wave that is driven and tossed by the sea. In other words, I mean, two opinions. God, you, you said this, but then now this experience is telling me this, but I've got to go back. I've got to believe, you know, this is what you said, but oh, now it's happening again. This pain came back and some this side. And some between these two, I'm like a wave of the sea, tossed to and fro, to and fro between the promise of God and unbelief. The promise of God and unbelief. This week I'm strong in faith. You know, I spent my quiet time with the Lord. I'm really good. Next week, oh, I'm having a terrible week and unbelief. I'm just on this side now. And so what we need to do is we need to be grounded. We need to stand firm. See, it comes from this, right? Genesis chapter three, verse one. Everyone remembers the story, Adam and Eve in the garden. God says to them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Serpent comes, what does he say? Did God really say? And so he hasn't changed. Remember there's that, called the African proverb where a leper doesn't change his spots. And so he's got the same old trick. God speaks a promise. I'll heal all your diseases. My experience is telling me different. My my family is telling me something different. My friends are telling me something different. Enemy comes in. This is opportune moment. Did God really say that he heals all diseases? Or, now that's Old Testament. They didn't have scientific knowledge like we did. There's new diseases in the earth that they didn't have then. And so yours isn't really covered. Did he really say that? A lie? I'm like, wait. Because you think it's your own thoughts. You think it's your own voice. That's how sneaky he is. And I, and I begin to consider, I begin, oh, that's true, eh? Dr. Google. He knows everything. <laughs> Aha, he's right. <laughs> Tree of unbelief gets planted. And now the fruit of wavering, the fruit of doubting. It's like Psalm 103 says this, but scientific research says this. Yeah, but the Lord says this. What am I doing? Tossed to and fro every wave of the sea. If we read on in James chapter seven, we see the danger of this. He says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In the NIV it says, for that person must not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. So if we allow unbelief to make us doubt, that position of wavering makes it difficult for us to receive the promises of God. God's here. It's like, yeah, take the promise. And I'm like, woo, woo. You know, he's like, no, just stand still. Come on. Give me. 
He's trying to get it to us. And so what we have to understand when, when it comes to the promises of God, it works twofold. God speaks it, but I have a part to play too. If He speaks the promise and I'm all over the place, I'm not gonna receive it. How can I even expect to get it? Because I'm not, in my, I'm not doing my part. And so what is my part? Believe. He, and, it's, and, it's, and this is what's so amazing about the Father. He gives you the ability to believe the thing that He's giving you. He's done it all. I just need to stand there. I just need to stand firm. I just need to, what does the Bible say? Resist, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I just need to resist the lie. I just need to resist. I just need to stand still and stand in faith and stand and believe. The words of Mary, the mother of Jesus, let it be done unto me according to your word. That's it. My part is to believe. My part is to work on the faith that He gives me. Is to walk out the faith that He already births in me. And so if I'm wavering, I'm hindering myself from doing my part. This is the danger of unbelief. But I love Romans chapter four, verse 20. It gives this beautiful picture of Abraham, the, the father of faith, the one who stood. And it says this, it says, no unbelief made him waver. In other words, in that year, those 25 years of waiting, you know, this, the lies of Satan is not unique to us. If he did it to Adam and Eve, he did it to Abraham. He did it to, to Moses. He did it to Noah. He did it to Gideon. I mean, I think Gideon and Moses are the most obvious examples. We're just speaking lies of insecurity. Oh, you, you can't do it. You can't speak. You're not good enough. You're the smallest clan. You know? And so Abraham had to stand against the lies of Satan. He had to stand against unbelief that would cause him to waver. And the Bible says at Romans chapter 4, it says, no unbelief made him waver. In other words, he had the ability in God to stand and to receive the promise and to wait 25 years without wavering. How amazing is that? We wake up with a sore throat to be like, oh my God. <laughs> and so we can follow his example. And so if he did it, so can we. And so how do we do it? Very simply, the first one, John chapter 10. If you go with me, John chapter 10, verse one to four. Jesus speaking says, truly, truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Listen to this, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. And so the first, the first thing that we can implement in our lives, the practical implementation is this, is that we need to learn to discern the voice of the enemy 
from the voice of God. Like I said in the beginning, when Satan speaks, he speaks lies, he speaks unbelief, he speaks darkness, in total, absolute contrast to that God speaks light, he speaks truth, and he speaks life. There's a very big difference between the voice of the enemy and the voice of the good shepherd, the Father in heaven. And so what John chapter 10 tells me is that me being a sheep, you being a sheep, being a believer, we have the ability to hear the voice of God. And so if you are born again, you have that ability. What we need to grow in is recognizing the voice of the shepherd. So the more I walk with the shepherd, the more I begin to recognize his voice. And so I know his voice so well that when the enemy speaks, I identify and say, wait, that's not the voice of the shepherd. That's not the voice of the one I've been following. It says, uh, so it says, the voice of another, I do not follow. In other words, he comes to speak unbelief and I recognize it for what it is and I say, no, I will not follow that. I'm gonna follow what the shepherd said. And very simply, what is the key to growing in our recognition of the voice of God? Right here. The more you hear him here, the more you'll hear him here. It's, it's, hearing the voice of God is not complicated. It's not complex. It's very, very simple. Spend time with the shepherd. Recognize his voice here and you'll begin to recognize his voice more over here. The second way we can discern between unbelief and faith is when you look at Luke chapter six, verse 43. Jesus speaking says this, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Verse 44, for each tree is known by its fruit. I read again, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. It's one of those tongue twisters again. For each tree is known by its fruit. And so very, very, very easy. What I am hearing, is it producing in me unbelief or faith? Is what I'm hearing producing in me a, a thought concept or a belief system that is in opposition to the promise of God over my life? If yes, I can say, I can judge the tree by its fruit. What is the fruit that is causing in me? Fear, doubt, wavering, unbelief. If any of these things are coming upon you through a thought that's in your mind, you can recognize it. Wait, 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 wait. That's not the Father. That's the voice of the enemy. That Jesus comes to bring life in abundance. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We can recognize the pattern work, the patterns of the enemy. We can recognize the patterns of the Father by the fruit that it brings forth. And so judge the fruit of your thoughts. If you have a thought in your head that is causing doubt, then you can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't partner with it. Rebuke it. Get rid of it. In, in the same, or let me just read it in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus referencing the same thing, but in another gospel, he says this. Matthew 7, verse 18 to 20. It says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When those thoughts, those trees of unbelief seek to be planted in your heart, they need to be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see about trees of unbelief, they're like weeds, they grow really, really quickly. And they bear fruit very, very quickly too. And so they have to be dealt with quickly. As soon as one preacher said like this, he said, I can't afford to have a thought in my mind about myself that God doesn't have in his mind about me. And so any thought, any concept that is in contradiction to the promises of God over my life, I need to cut them down. That's what Corinthians says, I cast down vain imaginations. Talking to us, you, the believer, says you have authority you have a spiritual weapon. You have the ability. You don't need to come forward for us to pray with you. You can do this by yourself. It says you have the ability to cast down vain imaginations, high and lofty opinions, arguments that seek to rise up, where? up against the knowledge and the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, they're trying to be in superiority over what Jesus has said. And so he says, cast them down, cut down them down. So some of us have a whole garden of unbelief trees growing in our heads and we don't even know. At some point in our lives, maybe it was a childhood, maybe it was through an experience, somebody hurt you, somebody said something to you, maybe it was through a circumstance, The enemy spoke a lie and a tree of unbelief was birthed in your heart. And this unbelief, it's causing you to doubt, it's causing you to waver, and it's opposing the faith that God is in birthing in your heart. So I want us to close our eyes and I wanna read Mark chapter nine. Mark chapter nine, there's a story of a man who, his son is, is demonized and it says that the demon throws him to the ground and throws him into the fire and, and he convulses and he, and he foams at the mouth. And the, the father brings this young boy to the disciples and they can't cast him out. And so the father turns to Jesus and he says this, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, then he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And so Jesus is here this morning. Notice he didn't condemn the father. He healed the son. The boy was delivered of his demon. He didn't accuse the father and say, no, I'm not gonna help you. But he helped the father in his unbelief. And so Jesus is here this morning. The spirit of truth is here this morning. Jesus is not here to condemn you. He's here to help you.
He's here with an axe in his hand to cut down the tree. And so, I want you to repeat this after me. And we're gonna ask God a question this morning. And I want you to do it with sincerity. Say this, Father, concerning your promises over my life, are there any lies that I have believed that have created in me unbelief and caused me to doubt. And now let's just wait and let him speak. If there are any areas, let the spirit of truth illuminate those things and highlight those things to you now. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Spirit of truth, come now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. If there is anything, our response to the Father is very simple. It's repent. Repent for believing the lie. Repent for empowering the lie. Change the way you think. Ask the Father, Father, what is the truth concerning this unbelief? Let Him remind you of the promises that He has spoken over you. This is Jesus cutting down the tree. And so Father, I pray for your people. I thank you, Jesus, you said you come and you, you cut the tree at the root. And so we say thank you, Father, by the truth of your word that you cut any tree of unbelief at the root, that you expose every lie for what it is. And Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command unbelief, doubt, anxiety and fear concerning the promises of God to be uprooted right now. In Jesus' name. And I command truth to be planted. Trees of life. And so Spirit of truth, would you speak truth? Would you reveal truth? Would you illuminate truth in the hearts and the minds of your unbelievers, of your believers, Father? In Jesus' name, I cast down every vain imagination, every lofty opinion, every form of reasoning, any thought, Lord God, that seeks to elevate itself in the, in the lives and the minds of your people. I cast it down, I pull it down now. I pull the lies down now. Voice of the accuser be silenced voice of the adversary be silenced. Thank you, Father. Each one this morning hears and recognizes the voice of the shepherd 
the voice of truth and the voice of life. And so, Father, we bless you. I just speak over us now, Lord, life in abundance to the full until it overflows. I speak a steadfastness and ability, unwavering ability to stand for the promise, to believe for the promise, and to see the promise of God fulfilled in the lives of your people. So Father, we bless you for this now and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Amen.